0: Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Loday.
1: Hi, I'm Allie.
0: And I am Boomer. We are still in the midst of uh, Best of 2022 list-making season right now, but uh, we're taking a pause this episode. The last one in the feed is a three-hour deep dive into our favorite movies of the year. Um, We are kind of putting that discussion to the side right now, because I think about half of the crew has listed their top 15 or top 20 or whatever they're doing. The other oh, half wow. is still, still pending publication. So uh, I, I don't know how much more best of 2022 talk people are interested in hearing. There's more coming as the month goes along. But this is a little bit of a break. It's a little side journey today.
1: Side quest.
0: I will say we did publish Boomer's um, list. That was one of the ones I mentioned that is already published since the last time we recorded. Good list. Great stuff. Oh, thank
2: you. I appreciate that. I you know, there was very little overlap between my list and your list, Brandon, and I haven't seen anybody else's post yet. Is anybody else's up yet? As of this recording.
0: James's is listed at the bottom of the last podcast episode because James just does not write at right, all. Right. I cannot mm-hmm. um force him to do it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> force his hand, literally. But I'm still waiting for Hannah usually does like a um illustrated list. Like she's oh, really yeah, that's right beautifully I love talented her list at that every i
1: look year. forward
2: to that yeah, yeah.
0: and then ali and Brittany usually write blurbs like you and i do um and i'm still waiting on those so
1: yeah
0: we're about halfway through i will say there are two front runners for movie of the year one is very expected and one is very unexpected so i am uh i'm pulling for the underdog but it's unlikely
2: i know that you can't tell us so i'm gonna guess the very expected is probably everything everywhere yep and the very unexpected is Neptune Frost. Ooh. I'm placing my back. You are half correct.
1: I think I know <laughs> the unexpected, and I think you'll be surprised.
2: Ho, ho, ho! All right. Well, all right. as long as it's not Mad God. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no comment. I'm just kidding. Every Everybody's <laughs> opinions are valid. Yeah, I um my, my list, my 15 list, I had a, a lot of trouble like with the top four. I don't think I've ever had so much trouble figuring out exactly which order to put them in before. You know, normally there's always a front runner and like a runner up, you know, and then, and then it gets, you know, three, four, five from there. But this one, any of my top four could have been number one. It was a very close race this year.
1: Yeah. That's why I usually do like lists of five with like honorable mentions where it's kind of like, these were good movies too. Cause after listing five very good movies and knowing there are other very good movies, I'm like, I can't order past five. You got to make right. me count. I'm not a mathematician.
0: It gives me a little too much leeway when uh, actually doing the math, because there is math involved in this.
1: I know, I know. I'm sorry, Brandon. I live to make your life hard, apparently.
0: (laughs) And I just need some patience and understanding with Boomer to continue that every list is valid feeling when Jackass Forever ends up being our best movie of the year. I need you to hold on to that. Wow.
1: That was not my guess for the underdogs. Oh, okay,
0: okay. (laughs) Things are heating up in the Swampies race.
2: Wow. All (laughs) right.
1: It's okay, Boomer. It's okay. My list will fix it.
0: (laughs) Actually, you are the deciding vote uh, for a lot of things. So I'm I'm eagerly awaiting publication. And maybe by the time this podcast is in the feed, we'll already have uh, checked that off. Yeah. In the meantime... Have you been watching anything else, Allie, besides best of the year contenders
1: Uh, and uh,
0: today's subject?
1: No, but I did watch a best of the year contender.
0: All right. All right.
1: I watched Marcel the show with shoes on.
2: Oh, fantastic. Yes. That was my number one.
1: I absolutely loved it. I cried so hard. I laughed so hard. It's so charming. I had so much fun with it, as I knew I would.
0: I was so glad. Yeah. I was saying last episode when we recorded that, like, no best of the year list for 2022 is complete without at least one stop motion animation film. It's true. And I think that one's just as formidable as any of the other options.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dare I say we're, like, in a new, like, golden age of stop motion. It feels like so many things came out this past year. I was just talking with friends last night and. They were gushing about a house, and I was like, yes, this is so good. And then I found out they hadn't seen Mad God, and I was like, are you serious? Because it's, like, someone who's really into that sort of stuff. And I was like, you would love it. Yeah. And they shared my fondness for Pinocchio, so I'm not alone.
0: Maybe if you put in a top five, it'll just be five stop motion animation films. I could see oh, that happening. So
1: far no, but you know, I could just <laughs> absolutely change my mind before now and when I submit it to you.
0: What makes Marcel the Shell special among the other stop motion films?
1: Um, it's heart. Is that too corny to say?
0: No, because I was the accurate same thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's heart. You know, the way it approaches things in a way at both Makes you cry and laugh, and it has such good things to say about, you know, forming a community and what a community means. You know, it can be 20 shells, or it can be, you know, some shells, some checks Mix, a pincushion, someone who's immigrated from the garage and has a funny accent, anything.
2: Lovely, lovely, lovely.
1: That's part of why it's so good.
2: It's heart, it's cohesion, it's comprehension, yeah. it's consistency its consistency is what won it over for me over like house which you know i I, i've complained about enough that third segment so i'll stop yeah Yeah. Yeah. and it's you know mad god is what it is and i i think that it's a technical masterpiece but it wasn't for me and parts of it i loved it but as a whole it didn't come together for me which I, i know that he worked over on it for like a really long time over years and so there were probably long periods of time between him working on segments so it totally makes sense that it's not 100 percent cohesive but i just it didn't hit for me the way that it hit for the rest of us and and that's fine it does nothing nothing has to you know Yeah.
1: also i just i'm a big jenny slate fan i would be real i just love her
2: i agree <laughs> i concur i mean
1: and she is given the chance to sort of like do her own writing and sense of humor it just it lines up very well with my own and Marcel the Shell is very in line with that.
0: I'm trying to think of the last time I saw her like headline something and obvious child is the only movie that's jumping out at me. And the movie's like very much her thing in a different way cuz yeah. it's like her doing stand up. Yeah. And very intentionally subverting rom-com tropes in like a political way.
1: That movie's great.
0: But you wouldn't expect that Marcel the Shell and Obvious Child were from the same creative mind unless you knew who she was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're not it's not like a continuation of the same art form really. It's kind of odd how how much I admire Jenny Slate's art but also can't name many things that she's like the main creative force behind. Yeah. Shameful. She should be up front and center more often. She
1: should. She really should. Um I think part of it is she has a very distinctive voice. And yeah. it's kind of like, you know, Kristen Shaw. She's great, but can't hide that voice.
2: Ding a ling. That's the first mention of Kristen Shaw we're gonna have tonight, and it won't oh, be the last. Oh nice. I love
1: that. She's also great. I love them weird voiced ladies. But yeah. Omer, since you wanna talk about Kristen Shaw, do you wanna talk about Kristen Shaw?
2: Okay, yeah. I mean uh, it's it's more of an allusion to Kristen Shaw, but back in August of twenty twenty one, we talked about a certain documentary do y'all remember what that movie was
0: august of 2021 mm-hmm. i
2: know yeah. were we all it seems like it was only yesterday and a thousand years ago we talked about the movie queen of versailles
0: oh yes oh she's got a new show doesn't she
2: she does have a show and that was what i was trying to finish before we we were recording tonight okay. because i was having so much fun watching it the show itself is not fun. It doesn't have the same sort of uh, kind of meanness that the documentary did. This one is sort of filmed, shot, edited, and like has the same journalistic vision as like a you know like a reality show about celebrities.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's not mocking her. You don't feel the same editorial tone in the show that you do in the documentary. Where, for those who don't remember. It's a film about Jackie Siegel, who is the second wife of real estate mogul Dave Siegel, who made all of his money by stealing the idea of timeshares. Uh, A man wanted to buy an orange grove that he owned. He asked why the man basically told him he was going to make it a timeshare. And Dave was like, no, I won't sell you my land and instead built his own timeshare condo building. And expanded that into an empire that collapsed during the 2008 financial crisis. So the Queen of Versailles film that we previously discussed takes place in the days leading up to that and following the crisis where they are trying to build Versailles, their own version of Versailles, which is eventually theoretically to be the largest home in America, largest private residential home, um, modeled on... Theoretically, the Palace of Versailles, but really it, it kind of looks more like the Louvre. Like they they just got their landmarks confused. Uh, <laughs> she does have a new show. It's been 17 years and the house <laughs> is still under construction. Yeah. By episode three, they have finished one room in the house. <laughs> and so when I watch something for this podcast or when I watch something in my life, just period, I have a spreadsheet in my drive where I write down what I saw what year it's from, my rating for it, and my watch date, and then I put a little check mark next to it after we discuss it on the podcast. Even though this is a TV show, I uh, put it in here, and all of my ratings are one to five stars, and I, I made sure to put this one as a thousand stars. I've been laughing, I've been crying, (laughs) Uh, I just watched episode five where they reveal the portrait that they're going to put up in her house. And I fell off of my couch (laughs) to the floor prostrate before this program. I would say if you're listening to this and you live alone, you know, or if you usually watch movies alone, do not watch this show by yourself. Watch the movie, watch the documentary with someone who has a very similar sense of humor where at the end of the day, it is like all we do while watching this show is just mock it. Because it really is at the end of the day in the show, just like in the movie, what you learn is that there's no amount of money that can buy class and there's no amount of money that can buy taste where these people who are building the biggest home in America, you know, they go into their pantry and they don't even have they have Kraft macaroni and cheese which, you know, is a staple for many people. I, I buy Velveeta because I'm I'm even trashier than that. <laughs> which, by the way, that was my dinner tonight. I'm not, <laughs> that was my dinner. Um, Queen of Her Sirens, again, watch it with someone who has the same sense of humor as you. Watch it with someone that you can mock these people and their foibles with. Again, they are the tackiest, saddest people because Jackie herself, She came from a working-class background, which she brings up as much as she can because I think that she is embarrassed. But now all of the kids from the documentary are like adults. So money also can't buy you out of tragedy, um, which did happen when their oldest daughter uh, died of an overdose. And so she has six children who are all still living in the house. But they range now instead of being like, you know, toddlers up to, I think when the movie, the documentary was shot, Victoria was like 14 or 15. Everyone is 14 and up now. The youngest children, the twins, they're 14. And the boys, the three boys all have the same birthday, which is bananas to me. Uh, She talks about how they were all conceived on this very specific vacation that she and her husband take every year, which does mean that she probably just (laughs) scheduled her C-sections for, you know, the same day every year but in like the second episode all three of their boy, all three of the boys have their birthday the same day and they like they're turning 18, 21 and 22, right? They're like the oldest and then there's like a there's a daughter who's 19 and then there's the young girl twins who are 14 and of course Jonquil is still there from time to time. Jonquil's no longer living with them. She's living her own life, but if you were curious, if you were worried, will you see Jonquil? You will see Jonquil. I make you that guarantee. <laughs> It's a delight. It's very funny if you mock it. I don't, I don't know what the experience would be, and I can't vouch for what the experience would be if I were just watching it at home by myself without someone who shared my uh, sense of humor. I might just get as mad at it as I do like the Kardashians. Like I can't, I can't promise that that wouldn't be my reaction. So if you watch it based on this recommendation and you're like, "Wow, Boomer just recommended that I watched Capitalist Propaganda." I'm sorry. That's not the experience that I had. I'm sorry. It's the experience uh, that you had.
0: And according to my notes, Kristen Shaw is on this show.
2: Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what, where so is this coming? Jackie's, Jackie's um, interior designer is a woman named Kim, who I am not convinced is not portrayed by Kristen Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> because every time they do an interview with her, it is like Kristen Shaw doing a talking head as Hazel from 30 Rock. But
1: that's oh, perfect. also, yes. one of the
2: things that's very funny about this is I thought when Kim first appeared, Kim, of course, being the character that Kristen Shaw theoretically portrays, I thought the hair and makeup people just hated her guts because <laughs> it was just like. And then I realized that every person on the show has the same horrible hair because it's Florida and the humidity. As soon as they step out of that makeup trailer, everybody has so many flyaways. Everyone has a halo of light around them from their hair because at one point. Okay. It's sad and shocking that the kids on my super sweet 16, 15, 20 years ago had more class than this family because, you know, it is disgusting that a 15 year old child would fly to Paris to pick a dress for their birthday party. But at least she went to Paris, whereas Jackie's like, we're going to fly to North Carolina to the furniture capital of the U.S. to pick out the (laughs) furniture for our tacky mansion. And what's really funny is that everyone looks so much better in North Carolina in that footage because they're not dealing with the Florida humidity. They all look like they actually did have hair and makeup done before going on screen. So what a ride. (laughs) I will move on. I guess I will go up the list of things that I have seen in the order in which uh, I enjoyed them. The first I'll mention is I saw the Lifetime original movie, Blue Lagoon, The Awakening. (laughs) <laughs> um, oh my
0: god i
2: i really needed something in the background that was not very distracting um that i could just sort of occasionally look at and uh, look up and see just two beautiful people in a beautiful place on an island uh it's very different from the original blue lagoon uh, they are not shipwrecked as children it takes place in the modern day it's you know, the homecoming queen and the school bad boy played by Brent Thwaites, which also, I assume, explains why I watch this movie. Um, they're on like a school trip to do Habitat for Humanity stuff. And then they go to a ship party that's uh, a, a party aboard a boat that's raided by the local Caribbean police. So they jump into a dinghy and end up lost at sea and, and land on this, you know, beautiful island with idyllic waterfalls. And one of the things about Blue Lagoon, not that I enjoy it. It's a horrible movie. The original, too, is what I'm talking about. It's practically a crime. Yeah. (laughs) In that film, there is, like, nudity and sexuality uh, to the extreme, excessively so, in ways where uh, that it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, Not just, like, because you're a prude, but you're just like, I don't know that this is what I need to be seeing or watching. And this one, it's so softcore because it's made for television where there's lots of like very like rippling muscle backs and like, you know, thrusting obscured by palm fronds. You know, if you share a computer with someone in your home. And you want something slightly <laughs> erotic to masturbate to that's not pornography, so that you can make excuses if it's discovered on your hard drive. Blue Lagoon: The Awakening is the movie for you. The people in it are beautiful. They're very sexy. Everybody is very hot. Um, at one point, Britton Thwaites kills like a jaguar that's been chasing his lady companion through the jungle. Um, oh, and also Denise Richards is is in it.
0: She's, now I'm paying attention.
2: Yeah. She plays, uh, it's interesting because, you know, the previous movies all take place on the island, but this one also shows sort of what's happening back home where this prom queen, homecoming queen's mom, Denise Richards, is like unwilling to give up on the search for her daughter on this island. So Blue Lagoon, The Awakening, I, I explained the parameters under which you might find yourself enjoying it.
0: When you've run out of the 200 David Dakota films that might fill that slot for you.
2: Yeah, but the thing is, David Dakota films do not have movie stars in them. <laughs> Blue <laughs> true. Blue Lagoon true. does. That's, that's the difference. Like, if you want to see Brenton Thwaites shirtless fishing in the ocean, this is the movie for you. You might find 10 or 11 Dakota movies that have that in them. But if you click on the lead's uh, name on IMDb, there is a 50-50 chance they will not have a headshot because <laughs> uh, they never worked again. So that's that's the difference there. Um, tied for like like three and a half stars, I saw Rosalind, which is a movie that just came to Hulu. Uh, it stars the girl who was the object of the creepy affections in the movie with the adult teenage boy with the broken arm what are we talking about here what is this
0: oh um dear evan hansen a
2: curious case of benjamin uh, dear evan hansen yeah he's yes. aging forwards rapidly it's like jack right um in the this movie uh caitlin deaver is her name she plays Rosalind, who is of course everyone remembers from english class right
0: romeo and juliet
2: Yes. Rosalind is Juliet's cousin. Yeah, I the idea, you know, I love the 90s era of updated, you know, high school set Shakespeare plays. We've talked about my love of 10 things I hate about you a lot over the years. Um, Classic. That's a great movie. All of those Rosalind with Caitlin Deaver. You know, she Rosalind is, of course, Juliet's cousin who Romeo is supposed to meet at the ball where he shows up and he meets Juliet instead. And the plot of Romeo and Juliet is instigated. This, it's set, you know, it opens during a period of time where Romeo is still trying to court Rosalind, and her father is trying to marry her off to various uh, men who's, you know, through whom their marriage would create, you know, social stability. And she is stuck on a boat with Dario, played by Sean Teal. When she's supposed to be meeting Romeo, played by Kyle Allen of American Horror Story and other things, at the ball. So it leaves him open to meet uh, Juliet, played by Isabella Merced, who I haven't seen in anything before. And Minnie Driver plays Juliet's nurse, and she is one of the shining jewels in this movie. It was actually a lot of fun. I don't understand why Rosalind didn't immediately realize that uh Dario was much hotter than Romeo and is the man she should have been with but then again i don't like it when a man has long hair in a movie i don't know, maybe <laughs> we should cut that maybe i shouldn't say that um i it definitely like i'll be completely honest with you when a man has long hair there's a point at which his hair can grow in length to where i can no longer tell if they're good looking or not uh, genuinely I had a friend once who I'd known for years I had long hair got a haircut. And I was like, oh, my God, Cody's hot. Like, I had no idea Like <laughs> for years. He's been hiding
0: behind those curtains.
2: Yeah, I was like, oh, I never I never understood why the ladies, you know, he had so many ladies on his arm all the time. But I guess it's because they don't develop face blindness when a man's hair goes past his ears like I do. Um, It's very funny. It's very cute. It has a nice little subvertive twist at the end that I really enjoyed. It's on Hulu, so if you already have Hulu, it's free. Again, maybe not a movie that you want to get all the way focused on. You know, maybe do some laundry while you're doing it, fold your clothes, but it's very cute. I'm going to give a thumbs up to Rosalind. Uh, the other thing that I saw that it was about equal is, as you well know, January 8th is the birthday of one of the finest musicians of all time, Jenny Lewis. But it's also the birthday of Elvis. And so Uh, on January 8th, we watched Blue Hawaii while drinking Blue Hawaiians, which you may remember having previously been mentioned on this podcast as the Elvis movie that has Angela Lansbury in it. Um, And I was very frustrated. Well, I was very amused by the realization that she was actually old enough to play Elvis's mother in this movie, not his love interest. (laughs) I looked it up. She was only 10 years older. So it's more Hollywood nonsense with that. Definitely, But uh, she's great in it. She steals every scene that she's in, obviously, because how could she not? She plays Elvis's mother, and it's Angela Lansbury playing this southern belle who now lives in Hawaii. Like many Elvis movies, I assume, because it's the only one I've ever managed to finish, there is not a lot of plot the plot is that chad comes home from the war that's it <laughs> chad comes home from the war and his mother wants him to not date a mixed-race girl who's uh, she's uh, her mother is like european her father is or i don't know I, we don't actually find out which parent is which but the other is like native hawaiian and so angela lansbury is like Talking in a Southern accent. And she calls her husband daddy so much that you you want to claw your ears off. It's so frustrating. (laughs) Please stop calling that man daddy, Angela. But the plot is that Chad comes home from, you know, the war. Uh, He meets up with his old gal. He goes out to the beach shack where he used to hang with his boys. Uh, They do some paddling around. He sings some songs. They surf. Uh, his mother finds out that he's actually home, so he has to, like, go back to the house. Um, he sings some more songs. His mother tries to get him to join the pineapple company, <laughs> the pineapple juice company, in the same role as his father, so he can take over as his father, as manager of this company. And all he wants to do is bum around, man, and play music and be a cool cat. And he does find a job as, like, an island, like, tour guide. And it's very fun. Uh, He ends up in jail at one point. And this is the movie that Fools Fall in Love comes from. So that's one of his best songs, you know. And in his later years, he was often, you know, embarrassed about the movies that he had done and the songs that were written for them. But for Blue Hawaii, Fools Fall in Love, that's the one that has stuck and it's one of his best. So, yes, we watched Blue Hawaii and we drank Blue Hawaiians and. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it that much. The person who was showing it to me was like, this movie has no plot, so maybe you won't enjoy it, but that's fine. You know, it was still a lot of fun. Apparently, it is one of the best of the Elvis movies, even though nothing happens. And it comes in at a a swift 82 minutes, which I know is very popular uh, on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Although the movie we're going to be discussing in depth tonight is not that short.
0: What I'm hearing is that you enjoyed a musical, like an old-fashioned True Blue musical. Yeah.
2: Shit. All right. Let me pull up my list. I got to add it to it. (laughs) (laughs) Got to add add to my list of the, of the, God, now we're about to hit double digits. Mm. The list of musicals I don't hate now has eight things on it. Top Secret, London Road, Pop Star, uh, God Help the Girl, True Stories, A Muppet Christmas Carol. Prince of Egypt and Blue Hawaii. Sorry, you like
1: musicals. Yeah, I, I was gonna to say. To yeah, I think at this point you've just <laughs> got to admit it.
2: Uh, well, I guess I guess this last movie that I'm going to talk about could by also some a musical be classified as a musical. It does it definitely is. have a couple of musical moments in it. I I already wrote out my thoughts at length, but I did want to segue over to Brandon because I know he watched this movie as well as we talk about the the best movie of 2023 so far, Megan. Uh,
1: I want to see you this. You know what? <laughs> I wouldn't
0: say it is my favorite release of the year so far. Because oh, I went and saw Shin Ultraman in the theater this week. Oh, fair enough. But I will echo your praise for Megan, which uh, is the follow-up. I mean, maybe he's made more movies since then, but Gerard Johnstone, who directed Housebound. Which we love. We love. And this is just as clever and unnerving and fun and satirical as that movie is and surprising and yeah obviously has paid off for his career more so than housebound did like it's a breakout hit
2: well i mean housebound was set and released in new zealand it it was not a hollywood movie so it was never going to have the cultural penetration that megan does
0: but even for like horror nerds like that movie came out almost 10 years ago now it's been a very slow cult build i think where megan was like instantly welcomed with open arms she just like danced and sashayed into our hearts pretty quickly
2: i might have gotten ahead of myself a little bit by by handing over the speaking baton (laughs) because our our dissension about this actually reminds me that the most thing the thing that i've been watching the most lately is and i don't want to provide the url uh, because i don't want this youtube channel to be taken down because they're doing god's work as archivists but if you google it you'll probably find this channel that has been uploading cisco and ebert episodes that they're able to acquire and do some like actual manual removal of vhs problems and they're posting them on youtube and while i i probably watched like 15 to 20 of them already and they're so great and they're so fun I was watching it with Kat. I was like, this is, you know, this is us. This is the Swamp Flicks podcast. Although has been has been brought up before. I think maybe we agree too much. Uh, While, well, uh, but, but I think that is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the other thing that I wanted to bring up and I'm sorry, I I, I I know we're getting a little long on time, but my very good friend, Anna, recently published her first book. We had the release party the night of Tuesday, January 3rd. It was very low-key. Uh, her name is Anna Reyes, and the title of the book is The House in the Pines. And amazingly, wonderfully, beautifully... Right now, it's sitting at number two on the New York Times bestseller wow. list for hardcover fiction.
1: Um, nice!
2: So, yeah, the release party was very... It was pretty low-key. It was at, you know, book people in Austin on Fifth Street. You know, there were maybe 70 people there you know she did a little bit of a reading she answered questions and it was very nice you know we went out afterwards and it was lovely so she has released her book um just a couple days later it was uh, divulged that it was the january pick for reese witherspoon's book club wow. which has sent it rocketing up to number two of hardcover fiction and the new york times bestseller list so uh Anna, I assume does not listen to this podcast but I've also said congratulations to her a hundred times in person. I'll say it again. Congratulations, yes, Anna. Yes,
1: congratulations, what wonderful Anna. news!
2: And for our listeners, we are not sponsored, but feel free to go out and buy yourself a copy of The House in the Pines. It won't be personally inscribed like mine is, but that's that's life. <laughs> anyway, back to Megan. It is a musical. You're right.
0: Yeah, she sings like Disney-style songs. I mean, I, we haven't even mentioned that Megan is an animatronic doll Uh, do we have
2: to explain megan
0: yeah you're right she is everywhere everywhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) it is everywhere if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't heard of megan i don't know what to do with you
0: well in that case i'm glad we took the time out to plug your friend's book because i cut that out of the last episode because that went way long and you never mentioned the title so i was like well that means nothing to anyone (laughs) so i cut that out so i'm glad you reinserted that and I will also say I agree with everything you wrote in your review, except that the one thing was not mentioned. And I think the thing that makes the movie work best for me is that Brian is
2: Jordan Alvarez.
0: No, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> of course, I'm sorry. of course, I don't know who anybody you mentioned okay. is. All right. <laughs> Never mind I don't know who the actors you're referencing; they're not Please famous to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the best part is that Megan gives amazing side eye and was recalling to me the funniest parts of Mother, like Michelle Pfeiffer's side-eye reaction oh, in that movie yeah. were making me cackle in the theater the exact way that Megan makes me cackle. And every time they cut to a reaction shot of this doll who's just shooting daggers across the room for anyone who crossed her or her like child companion, um, I was howling and had a great time. Oh, yeah, one more thing you didn't mention because you weren't there. Uh, in my theater, there were <laughs> actual babies <laughs> uh laughing at all the murders very loudly like i I didn't see these children but at most that voice was coming out of a three-year-old at at Uh. the very oldest and they were like cackling at every kill and i was i was very proud of them another little horror fan was born that night
2: i do think that i've mentioned before that i think one of life's simple pleasures is going to the movies early in the day yeah and i did go see this early in the day and I i didn't hear any laughing but as we were leaving although there were not many other people in the theater one of them was a family with two daughters who were maybe like (laughs) seven and nine and i was like i don't know that i don't know if they should have been here but okay
0: (laughs) i love it i really do agree with what you said in your review about how like the r-rated cut of this movie that might be floating out there um is probably a better film than the pg-13 one that's raking in the dollars right now but like it is kind of cool that the PG-13 rating gives people courage to bring their small children to this movie. I mean, the children seem to be enjoying themselves, which I think is a positive thing. It's beautiful.
2: They really are the future. <laughs> <laughs> there really is hope.
0: Like I said, I'd, I saw this, Shin Ultraman, and a few other like new releases, but I've been watching them with the other half of the podcast crew. So I'm not going to go into full detail now, because I assume we're going to be covering all that territory again, including more Megan talk. So um, maybe I should be talking about the stuff I've been watching by myself lately. I don't know if y'all have been noticing this, but like, I don't know if I'm just treading water, but I haven't been writing individual reviews of every movie I watch lately. I've been um, grouping them together.
1: I have, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't know what I'm really doing. Like, it's not like I'm doing individual star reviews. It's like, I'll watch two or three movies and like find a theme between them and kind of clear my backlog that way. And it's honestly just because I don't have as much time to write lately i've just been busy so like when i do have time to write it's like how can i knock out three of these motherfuckers in a row um on that tact there are two subjects i've been diverting into lately and they're both just movie stars who have nothing to do with each other but uh i watched a couple daniel radcliffe movies recently first on ally's suggestion i watched the weird al mock biopic starring daniel radcliffe yeah uh, which was very fun and enjoyable, and has that kind of like pop star, right? Satirical edge to it, and in, in a fun way. Um, but then I went back and watched a film I saw when it first came out, but didn't really remember. Which was this gothic horror he did in 2012 called The Ooh, Woman the in Woman Black.
2: In Black, yes.
0: So okay, that movie is very interesting to me because it's like it's very good. Like as a gothic horror film, yeah, it's very scary. It does a really good balance of jump scares and like actual atmospheric dread and like the stuff you actually want out of gothic horror so it's like it's a very good well-made mainstream horror film got a lot of creepy dolls because the whole hook of it is that the titular woman in black is a ghost that's targeting children in this village
2: almost enough creepy dolls almost enough
0: could be more and they could dance yeah (laughs) but that's too much to ask that every movie has a tiktok moment
1: That maybe sing
0: yeah that couldn't hurt. But I was just thinking about Daniel Radcliffe's career watching Weird Al and then this, like, gothic ghost story, which was kind of a comeback for both Hammer Horror as a production house and a, like, stepping out, like, I'm an adult now. I'm not Harry Potter anymore. I'm my own leading man who will have a career beyond that franchise.
1: And oh, does he?
0: (laughs) Well, like, Hammer came out looking great in that it was like oh wow they can still make scary movies and they can still make like effective gothic horror films dan radcliffe does not come out well in that gamble like Mm. he is so boring and replaceable and just is just kind of a drip and like everything that works in the movie has nothing to do with his presence other than like it was easier to get it funded financed and distributed because it had a movie star attached to it but otherwise he's like replaceable with any actor who was like on the BBC on a BBC miniseries that year like there's just nothing he's bringing to the table and I just want to say in the 10 years since the woman in black came out Daniel Radcliffe has done a lot more with his Harry Potter notability and like is just taking weirdo projects left and right like your Swiss army mans and your weird owls and I'm just very happy that he's not trying to be a normal leading man anymore Because that's not his strong suit. His strong suit is being a weirdo millionaire um, and letting his freak flag fly on the big screen. And I'm very happy that even though I would say the Weird Al movie isn't as good as The Woman in Black, it's a better Daniel Radcliffe movie and a better use of his um, cultural clout that he can get stuff like that funded.
1: Yeah. I want more former child actor, like one-hit wonder people to just do wild, wild stuff. I mean, we got... We got our Pats, we got K Stu, we got D Rad.
0: Yeah, but what's interesting about the Twilight Kids is like they're actually making high-minded art films with like all these auteurs yes. and
1: yeah, they're kind
0: of <laughs> chasing awards and chasing like critical clout. Yeah, but Daniel Radcliffe is not doing no. that. He's like, what is the weirdest goofball shit I could be in for fun? And the only person that can really um compare him to in that way as Elijah Wood I was about to say, thing.
1: Elijah Wood does the same thing. I yeah. agreed to that as well.
0: And uh, maybe his career will take the same way that, like, Elijah Wood doesn't even need to be on camera to get I that know. kind of stuff funded. Like, he's kind of laid the foundation where he can be a producer or just get his friend's stuff greenlit and marketed well. Yeah. And it seems like Dan Radcliffe has good taste for weird art. Um, And I'd like to see him continue to be the weirdest possible version of himself and not a serious actor which i don't think he's ever been particularly good at
2: yeah agreed
0: and the other road i went down uh as far as just like watching a particular actor's work for a while is i watched the trio of dolly parton's movies when she first started making big production feature films in the 80s
1: nice
0: so i watched like nine to five i watched her really ridiculous sylvester stallone duo movie rhinestone which i have an affection for even though it's like very bizarre But I just want to say, after revisiting that era of Dolly Parton, I guess I have a slightly hot take in that I think The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is her best movie. It's like the best use of her on screen. It is a traditional musical in a time where that stuff was kind of dead. And it is a kind of free love, ribald comedy in an era when that stuff was already dead. Because we're kind of like moving towards the sort of Reaganite conservatism of the 80s. but. It's her and Burt Reynolds. She is the madam of a brothel in rural Texas. He's the sheriff of the town who turns a blind eye to the brothel. And they have like a secret romance that no one else in town knows about. Or at least they're polite enough not to mention in Good company. And then (laughs) uh, I I believe it's Dom DeLuise plays this like out of town reporter who wants, wants to make this big sensationalist deal about the fact that this brothel is just operating without any hassle from the cops. Like, they're just, like, letting this illegal operation go. And the movie's, like, weirdly sex-positive about the brothel. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's just a cultural institution here. It serves its purpose in the community. It gives these people work um, and a place to, like, safely make a living. And it's, like, really sad when these, like, moralists uh, who don't understand its place in the community have it shut down. And it kind of feels like the end of an era within Hollywood, too, or like, all these, like, you know, the era when, like, something like um Beyond the Valley of the Dolls could be made by Fox. Uh, speaking of Roger Ebert, again, he, he wrote the screenplay for that one. And it's, like, an X-rated bosom comedy. <laughs> like, uh, the fact that that was a movie that was made on, like, major studio money. I don't know. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas feels like the last gasp of that kind of stuff. And it's about that art form being shut down in a way. And Dolly Parton gets to sing a lot. Throughout it, you hear this sort of musical motif and you're like why does that sound so familiar what is that and then uh at the climax she sings the motif as a barn burner um emotional moment and it's i will always love you and it's like oh yeah she wrote that song she's a genius yep <laughs> yep and i love that about her like you kind of forget how much she's accomplished because she's done so oh, much in so many amazing. different fields yeah
1: best thing to come out of my home home state <laughs>
0: In a small Tennessee mountain town, as she likes to remind you as often yeah. as possible. Um, I want to just say best little whorehouse in Texas, best Dolly Parton film. I enjoyed all three. Um, I just I think Nine to Five gets a little too much credit. I think this oh, one's really? actually a better use of her time and money. Mm,
2: okay, now now we're gonna have to disagree.
1: I was gonna say like the ensemble of Nine to Five, it's like perfect. You no, know, I feel like they play off each other really well. Like lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, like all of them. I love it.
0: I don't want to say anything negative about it. It's got a bunch of funny people in it, and it's about labor organizing, and it's great. I'm not denigrating that film.
1: Labor organizing, you know, female friendship, getting internalized misogyny. It's all good, okay?
0: I also enjoy Nine to Five. I just think Whorehouse is uh, a better Dolly Parton movie. (laughs) I guess my only argument.
2: Unfortunately, history has been written on the evidence left by one part of society. There is another side to history, which is much more subdued and making far less clamour. This is something which one Italian poet, Zanzotti, has called the whisper of the generations. This is a way of telling history outside the official channels. By listening to this whisper of the generations, it permits us to look at our own history in a broader sense from what we read in school books. To appreciate it as the history of human experience. Culture is humanity moving forwards. How much culture is to be found in that whisper of the generations. How few intellectuals know how to listen to it. So for this week, I had Ali and Brandon, and also myself, because this was a first-time watch for me. Watch the 1978 Italian film written and directed by Armano Olmi entitled The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Now, one of the things that I know is true about all of us here on this podcast is that we have been movie people for our whole lives. And I have previously mentioned movies that I saw specifically because they finally filled in a gap in my knowledge. Because when I was 12 years old, or, or whenever my family got the internet for the first time and it was by myself during the summer by myself and you know uh, was home alone was allowed to do whatever i wanted the internet was much smaller but tv guide had a web uh, a website where you also could have go to the ask the expert section where you could ask questions about tv to the televisionary and you could ask movies about or ask questions about movies to the flick Chick, who no one knew at the time uh, was actually Maitland McDonough, who is one of the preeminent film critics of her generation. And she literally wrote the book on Dario Argento films. And I used to read and reread her column all the time to see what the answers were. And there were certain movies that really got stuck in my mind based on those articles. And many of them I have, managed to see in my adult life because they were harder to find back in that era of the internet what i'm specifically thinking about and talking about is i mentioned i think this for the first time when i wrote my review of the legend of Boggy creek but also that was the first place i ever heard about bad ronald which we have talked about before on this podcast uh in brief so one of the other movies somebody asked many years ago what about this movie that I saw where there was a fable in it, and it might have been European. And Maitland wrote back, I shouldn't say Maitland, we're not friends. Miss McDonough wrote back about the movie The Tree of Wooden Clogs. And she said, I'm not surprised that this is the thing in the movie that stuck out to many people. The film is in many ways slow for many audiences. But I have been meaning to watch it ever since then. But when a movie is three hours and seven minutes long, it's sometimes hard to work up the nerve to commit to that. So I used this podcast as a vehicle to force myself to finally go through with seeing The Tree of Wooden Clogs. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did. This movie was beautiful. Uh, set in the late 19th century, it is about four sharecropping peasant farm families that live on this one building. On a landlord's land, where he gets a third, or I two think it's two thirds, yeah, of the yeah, he gets two thirds of the harvest. Which I really do want to dig into, like the concept of landlording and everything, as much as we can tonight, I and mean, just how like poverty is always with us, which is one of the things that this movie is about. But it really, it starts out as a bit of a slog, and then it really speeds up as it goes along to the point where. You might feel it's length at the end of it, but maybe not. I I guess I want to ask, what did y'all think about this?
1: I enjoyed it, and I thought, you know, it's a fascinating, like, historical picture. Like, being a period piece, you know, it didn't feel like as... You know how sometimes you watch modern period pieces, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It feels very, like, fabricated, but this felt very, like, authentic and, like is how these people still must live right and you know maybe they did I don't know but in that way I thought it was really impressive but so depressing this movie's kind of a bummer but like you said it's it's part of just poverty still being with us
0: yeah it's kind of hard to talk about this in any terms that doesn't sound like eating your vegetables yeah Um, (laughs) because it is three grueling hours it kind of reminds me of like movies that only get releases in America from that November to January stretch where it's like important movies come out this time of the year and important means that you're going to be very sad exactly. and it's going to yeah. take a lot of your emotional and mental labor to get through it. Um, and, you know, don't worry around the bend in the spring, we'll start sewing superhero stuff again. You can like lighten up. And um, I don't know. I do struggle a little bit with that. Cause like Allie was just saying the like realism of recreating this rural lifestyle is something the movie brags about like in on screen texts very early on. It's like yeah. these are the actual tools and spaces and, you know, daily routines that someone would have been um living in the nineteenth century. And I think the thing it was bragging too is like it's um a recreation of this specific Italian dialects, the Bergano dialect that like was sort of lost to time it's hard to talk about a movie in those terms without it sounding more like a classroom tool than a work of art. But I I do agree with Boomer in saying that like it builds to something emotional and like narrative focused over the course of its runtime. But it, it does feel like eating your vegetables a little bit. Like if I'm into art cinema and I'm into the art of filmmaking, this is like the most stereotypical version of that. Like, Criterion doing these like crisp restorations of these like miserable European art films that have good politics but aren't necessarily entertaining in a traditional way. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound like I didn't enjoy it. (laughs) But uh that's that's obviously not our usual go-to expertise here.
2: Well, and I will say that I normally do not care for like period pieces. I actually I have had I have so much trouble trying to read period pieces even and it's it's to the point where if i'm actually watching an episode of alfred hitchcock presents that's set like 40 years before it even though that show is like 70 years old mm-hmm. i will watch it like i love um the novelist david mitchell and convincing myself to read the thousand Albums of jacob diazot was such a huge like trial for me even though i knew it was going to be a great novel because as soon as I pick up a book and I read the back cover and it says any year before 1980, I immediately oh, am no. bored. Like, I'll read novels that are set in the 1800s that are contemporary to the 1800s. But I, I'm generally very disinterested in period pieces specifically. This, I, I don't know, I guess it really brought it to life in a certain way for me, which I know is sort of a cliche statement but in honesty that's that's what happened for me watching this movie it's interesting that you refer to it as a classroom tool because i i did kind of think about that in some ways but in a less negative way cuz one of the books series that i read as a kid before i got into more sci-fi and fantasy and this was a book series my mom bought because she loved it cuz she was a country girl were laura ingalls wilder's yeah,
1: little house on the prairie little house on the
2: prairie books oh. And this movie reminded me of those a lot. Mm -hmm. It mostly reminded me of Farm Boy, which is actually the one that's about her husband, Almanzo uh, Wilder's upbringing. Because the Ingalls family, they're constantly on the move. Every book, they're in a new place. The prairie, the big woods, blah, blah, blah. They never have the chance to become as settled as any of the characters in this film. Whereas Almanzo being the farm boy who grew up his whole life in one place, you know, there's a section in that novel, and I'm going to be straight up with you. I haven't read these in possibly 25, 28 years. I still remember vividly the section of the novel where the cobbler comes to visit the farm, where they get their shoes once a year and they have to make them a little bit big because when the cobbler comes to town, he's not coming for another year. So you've got to get shoes that are big enough that when he comes around again, you are not hurting yourself.
1: I remember that.
2: Which is always just such a gamble. And when Freaky, uh, the dress peddler, showed up at the sharecropper farm in this movie, it was all that I could think about was Almanzo and his shoes. And of course it does become interesting because the title takes its uh, name from kind of what is the biggest inciting climactic incident in the film, which is, you know, Batista is a farmer who he and his wife, who is pregnant, she's pregnant. The priest at the beginning of the film is basically telling him that he needs to send his child to school, even though that will mean that his child is not able to help on the farm the way the other children are.
1: And has to walk four miles to the school.
2: Yeah, six kilometers, you know, to and from. And then what eventually happens is that uh, Minek breaks his the wooden sole of his clog at school and his father goes to chop down a tree uh, in order to make a new shoe for his son and then tries to disguise that a tree has been chopped down and it is eventually discovered by the landlord who because one of his sharecroppers cut down a tree on his land is evicted from their farmstead Uh, and that is the end of the film as batista and his wife and children being cast out into the outer darkness at night like like the parables in the new testament about people Mm -hmm. being cast out into the outer darkness it is bleak and i understand the reading of this film is depressing i won't i won't say that it's a wrong reading i think it's more about the joy of life
1: oh yeah there's a lot of that i mean the young couple i don't know just their whole thing was making me laugh just like these newlyweds, and the only time they're, like, together, all they get to do is, like, look at each other. And then, like, anytime they're on screen, even after they're married, like, it's just mostly, like, them, like, sheepishly, like, looking at each other. Yeah. It's so funny to me, but it's also, like, yeah, I mean, that's what happened. Well, and to the
0: movie's credit, like, the actual titular parable, like you were saying, that's the ending of the film. And if you watch, like, marketing material... Um, like trailers and stuff from the time, that stuff is like spoiled as if the whole movie is about that one incident. And it's such a small portion of this full spectrum of life the movie is showing. But, I mean, it, it is the kind of like unflinching realism where like it signals that it's important unflinching art by making you sit there and watch like a pig get slaughtered on screen at full length, which is I, I, something that happens a lot in this kind of like high minded European. I was gonna art say
1: film. I gonna disclose that I did not pay attention to the pig slaughtering. And like I get the it. Pig slaughtering get is
2: it take it, it it goes on for a while. It does. When they when they kill that goose at the beginning of the movie, yeah, the goose, boom, it's done. That's
1: yeah.
0: There's some pretty heart wrenching pig screams and like I don't know, pigs know when they're about to get killed. Yep. <laughs> like they're pretty smart. <laughs> so like it's very like heart-wrenching, and it's something that a lot of movies like this go to as a default to, like, signal this is important, and this is real, and this is real life, and, you know, we're not pulling any punches here. Um, And I kind of roll my eyes at it, because I've seen it so many times. Yeah. But you're right, though, that the movie's, like, three hours long, and, like, those parts are, you know, it's part part of this, like, full spectrum of life. Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah, that's, that is a very... Stark thing that sticks with you, but like there are also long stretches where it's just this like grandfather's like, um teaching the next generation down the line his little gardening tips. and it's like very cute oh. and warm, oh
1: it's so good yeah.
2: an encapsulation of 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 a large picture of life, right, the good and the bad. And I do think normally when we're talking about films that are the kind of films that you're referencing. In my experience, they're always darkness, darkness, darkness. It's, you know, life is a relentless slog from birth to death of never-ending labor under the crushing boot heel of the wealthy. Yes. Whereas this manages to be much more uplifting and beautiful because although it is a slog, life happens in the moments between. I really love the sequence when Widow Runk is worried about the cow. And she goes and she like prays and she like begs for God not to kill her cow, which is a very bleak thing that can happen. We've already seen that she has had the priest offer to let two of the children go and live at the orphanage to give her some breathing room. Mm -hmm. Her oldest son, who is only 15, is now doing a man's job of working at the mill, which is not presented as if it's, you know, fun, effortless summer job. It's it's hard hard manual you're lifting labor
1: huge bags of grain you're dealing with equipment that is pretty dangerous you know it's not it's yeah. stuff
2: and so for her the death of this cow will mean the utter and complete and final breaking of her heart and miraculously the cow does recover even though the butcher is like kill it now uh, while you can still get some meat from it so there are these little moments of, of happiness and joy and, you know, happening all in between. And I will say that at least part of this may come from, like, my own personal background and life. Like, we don't get into that too much here. I usually talk about how my life was influenced by, like, my love of movies. But, you know, I grew up pretty poor. And I didn't grow up, I, I sometimes referred to my childhood as growing up on a farm. It was not a farm. It was five acres on which we had chickens and we did grow as much of our own food as we could. And it was a, you know, a two bedroom trailer that we lived in up until I was like in middle school, at which point, you know, we built the house on the same land and my parents house now is, is lovely, but I barely lived in it. So when I look back on my own childhood and I've said this before, 50% of like my childhood memories are just doing manual labor which is why I promised myself I would never live somewhere where I would ever have to cut the grass again. I've only ever lived in an apartment in my adult life. I've never lived in a house. I will never be, I I look back and it's all just feeding chickens and picking up sticks and mowing grass and picking up grass and, you know, spreading out manure and spreading out compost. That is what I remember more, like uh, one of the biggest things in my childhood,
0: well, that's why it makes that's why it makes it so touching that this farmer is willing to like let his kid go to school, yeah instead of like using the kid as like quote unquote free labor yep. which is like kind of what children are for when you're living that kind of lifestyle, but he like loves this kid so much that he's like willing to like let those extra hands loose,
1: but really interesting though um I'm gonna put on my my educator cap as an early childhood educator uh You know, so many of the big, like, educational movements came from Italy around this time or right after World War II. So, you know, Maria Montessori is just getting started around this time with her, like, research and taking in orphan children and children that were on the street and such a big part that is teaching, like, practical life skills. So you're watching this kid go to school not learning anything practical for the farm. And you're watching these kids who are on the farm, and you're like, okay, well, they're learning too. Like, they're singing about spring and the seasons, and they're counting. And, you know, I think it does a good job of showing, like, both are valuable. Like, it's not just like, a, yeah. you know, it does a good job, like we were talking about, like showing all the spectrums of life. But, like, you know, you don't see any of these kids and think, oh, yeah, this is miserable childhood. Like, these kids have a lot of work they're doing but they're also having fun and they're like not expected to not have fun when they're doing the work you know like except for the one yeah. kid with the very abusive father who's horrible
0: no if if the movie makes any like moral judgments about anything it's just that landlords are the scum of the earth yeah, which is much. legitimately just a, like a, a standard fact yeah. that uh, kind of like what Boomer was saying about you know agricultural life not changing throughout the ages like Landlords are still the scum of the earth now. <laughs> Even though the uh the scope of real estate has changed um in the century since. Yeah. Um you know. That fact has not changed. Much like all the other like um simple facts of everyday life and labor have not changed much since um this time either. Which might be the point of the movie, is just that like life is still kinda just like this. Yeah. With yeah. just different parameters.
2: We work longer hours.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Automation has made it so that um more production is being squeezed out of us, but without that profit trickling down in any way whatsoever.
2: And it is sort of interesting that the movie actually does address the way that things do trickle down from the upper class, both uh, artistically and monetarily, and how that can be so fleeting. Uh, Because there's the one character who at the carnival discovers the gold coin, and because he doesn't know what to do with it, he hides it in the worst place he could, which was in the mud, in the caked mud of the horse's hoof. Yeah. And then of course, eventually it goes missing and it's missing essentially forever. Like it, it never reoccurs and we have no reason to think it will ever be found. That how that horse goes everywhere. But also we have two scenes. First is the landlord listening to his Victrola mm-hmm. and everyone in the, in the surrounding area, the surrounding lands just stopping and listening to it for a, a moment. And then there's also the scene where the young suitor of the, you know, the married couple that we see closer to the end of the film, he's walking around and he stumbles across you know, I don't know if it's the landlord's house. Um that is one of the weaknesses of this movie. Is it's Because it's all white people caked in dirt. It's often often difficult to tell who I did have that problem at points where I'm like, is this the same? But he wanders up to a rich person's house and the sort of security person there, the guard, the the watchman stops for a moment and just watches and listens to this like piano recital that all of the rich people seem kind of bored by. But yeah. it's, like, the small amount of beauty in his life. Yeah.
1: It also, you know, this is to get back to kind of my point about, like, the education, especially of this particular child, is, and just generally as a force during this time period, like, you know, you have so many big institutions pushing down on these people. And, like, Perch is such a big one. Like. Yeah. Every time he gets to do it, like the priest is like, Oh, don't be greedy, you know, don't care for money. Sacrifice is what God wants. And, you know, <laughs> it's very like, you know, words of the landlord just through the religion.
0: Yeah. They used to make me so mad in like every art history class I ever took was just like hearing about the way people lived and then seeing all of their resources sort of vampirically sucked into like this one funneled
2: up into the church.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's a beautiful building, but like, is that really serving the community in any kind of practical real world yeah. way? And, you know, yeah. the promise of like a better life after this one being worth it for the suffering mm-hmm. makes me so physically angry every time it comes up as a Especially topic. Especially <laughs> because it's always,
1: always preached to the poor. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. they don't go around to the rich people's houses telling them to sacrifice
0: and the, the capitalist part of that too is like they only have so much that they get to keep so like the church takes a, another chunk of that sliver so what they have is something they have to fiercely protect so even what i was saying earlier about the grandfather like having his little gardening tips where he like he'll get up at four A.M. at a certain time before the snow falls to spread chicken shit on his tomatoes to keep him warmer than anyone else's crops. He's not sharing that information so that other people will have a good life. It's like this is a secret thing I do to make sure I have more tomatoes than my fellow laborer. So it's like incentivizing this like division. Mm-hmm. So like even that kind of like um competitiveness is making sure everyone else has even smaller of a like resource to get by on a daily basis so like even the the warm inviting stuff is pretty grim the more you get into the details but you know it has nothing to do with the human spirit really it has more to do with like just pretty traditional exploitation things basically capitalism is evil yeah (laughs) story that uh echoes throughout time
2: capitalism is omnipresent in their lives because they are sharecroppers and renters but so is the church Mm -hmm. and the church it's much more obvious because they gather every night, they go to mass, say their rosary. they say their
0: rosaries.
1: Five yeah. times a day.
0: <laughs> and they're not even allowed to dance once a year at the carnival without some like old bitty coming in and telling them they're yeah, going exactly. to hell for enjoying themselves for like 30 minutes.
2: Yeah. And it, it is really telling that the film's beginning and end like plot elements are instigated by this priest who doesn't seem to be... He's not malicious at all. He comes in as a very caring and kind figure.
1: Uh, he's also like not repentant or like you know because you can tell he's comfortable like he's got his nice clean vestments he's got a nice warm church like he's not hurting but you know he's gonna go to these people and say you should send your kid to school and like like fine yes but here are all these complications and he doesn't offer to help them with any of them right you know the help he offers is to Take someone's children away which she kind of already has effectively done for one family like i just have a hard time seeing religion in this film like as anything other than like another way that these people are kind of kept down
2: i i agree that the church could actually be doing so much more and they really are not that they have like brandon says vampirically sucked up all of this money and they've used it to build this to build this institution which is in no way really providing for the communities that it's stolen from, despite having the space and resources to do so.
0: And I think the movie's, like, continued resonance beyond just, like, the struggle of getting by on a day-to-day basis as a community or as an individual, like, is pretty clear. But, like, the stuff that gets me fired up and angry about my own life is all present here, too, like... I'm angry about the religious structure I was raised in, especially, like, denying yourself pleasures in this world for a promise of a better life after this one makes me angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uh Kind of what Boomer was alluding to earlier, like, when I think about how long I've had jobs, like, when I think back to, like, serving cafeteria food to, like fellow students in middle school to, like, supplement my tuition. Yeah. There are ways that child labor continues even now that yeah. I've been participating in. Like, I've just had a job for so long. I'm so fucking tired of it already. <laughs> and there's so much left to go. Uh, and I think that all resonates to the movie in a very identifiable way. That, like, it's still infuriating and, like, fires you up. But I don't think the movie ever make puts that fine of a point on any of this stuff. And, like, I'm hearing y'all talking about the religious institution aspect of it and I don't think it like presses on that hard or like underlines it in yeah. any way. It's just kind of like a simple fact of like something that continues through the ages the same way that like surviving as a family and you know feeding yourself and just getting through each sunrise and sunset continues through the ages because that's just what life is.
2: Religion's always in our time to that too because I don't think it's any secret to people who are longtime readers. Uh, or listeners to our content that, you know, when I talk about growing up in that rapture cult, you know, I guess it I, calling it a cult, some people might take issue with that, but growing up within this rapture church, rapture school, rapture, like whole identity, it was also very entwined with both this praise for pastoral life, as well as like my family, actually at one point having the opportunity for some upward mobility and that being taken from them because they were tithing. Like that our lives could have been much better, but my parents as true believers gave money to the church, 10% of their income. That was something that kept us in a level of poverty that I experienced as a child where I can remember days where like just hoping that the chickens would lay some eggs so that, you know, there would be breakfast. This movie, to me, it captures both that sorrow, but also the joy of the... Sim- I don't know. I I, can't, I don't want to say the joy of the simplicity yeah. because the simplicity is not something to be praiseworthy of. But there is something about this film that captures the joy and the moments between you.
1: you can tell, like, that even if people in this community are struggling to care about each other in their whatever capacity they can you very much feel the connection they have like they sit in the barn and they like crochet and they tell stories to the kids and sing songs and kids run around through the fields singing songs like it's very much like all of these forces pushing down on these people but they're still managing to squeeze some joy out of it yeah
0: if I'm going to push back on this in any way, and this is really just for the exercise of being oh, an it. asshole.
1: Oh, you- <laughs> Go ahead, Gene.
0: <laughs> yeah, Sorry. this is this is me trying to like bring some entertainment value here just by being a prick. <laughs> uh, I guess if I'm continuing to live this lifestyle where like even if the promise of automation is that I was supposed to have more free time, so that there were, there's less labor to do, but instead it's just, like, producing more and more and more. And I'm still living this daily toil. Wouldn't I rather have more of what they're having in the barn, which is these, like, escapist stories that, like, breaks them out of this pattern and allows them to imagine a life outside of that daily toil? Wouldn't I rather watch an entertaining picture in a more traditional sense that, like, brings some, like, fantasy and uh, vivality to my day? than um, just sort of being reminded of how life is.
1: You just nailed, like, why I've only been reading romance novels for, like, the past year and a half, so...
0: I just generally prefer fantasy to realism. And I I understand that this movie's, like, main point is the realism. So, like, when I was annoyed by the pig slaughter or by, like, the early on-screen text saying, we've painstakingly recreated what life actually was like at the time. I don't think that's, like, cinema's height. And I realize cinema can do a lot of different things. I just just don't think that, like, I need that necessarily. Whenever people complain about, like, oh, that's not realistic in a movie, therefore it is bad. Oh, my God. I'm always on the defense with that, where I'm like, well, movies don't have to be real. Real life is real. I live it all the time, and I would love to, like, take a fucking break every now and then and i'm not saying that i disliked this movie in any way i'm just saying this is never what i'm looking for is like the most realistic depiction of everyday life it's like i i would i would love to live anything else other than everyday life for two hours out of the day it would be nice
2: i understand that (laughs) i think that we not we us in this in this group but we as a society that we live in a society (laughs) that we have been conditioned to think of films in a very specific insular small way and this actually was a thing that came up in the car while we were waiting for an estate sale to open yesterday morning we were talking about this and i was talking about to bring this full circle my top 15 list and i mentioned that don't worry darling was on it and one of my companions was very surprised because Although they had not seen it, they had absorbed from the culture that it was bad, that it was capital B bad, because of its, you know, the reaction to it by the public. And I think that part of the public reaction to it has been a desire for normalcy and realism. And like film can do anything. And in America, the Hollywood system, it's like if we think of films as workers of arts, like pa- works of art, like paintings. We have been conditioned to desire, accept, appreciate, and defend only one version. Like, let's just say impressionism. So anything other than impressionism is treated as, oh, it's not right. It's not what a movie should be. It's not the way that films are supposed to work. You know, I remember reading a very fascinating essay years ago that, like, the introduction of sound to film and thus dialogue was one of the things that really like killed the ability for film to be anything that
1: was such a thing yep
2: and so ever since reading that i have tried to challenge myself more and i i do know that over the years with the content that we have been producing i have been the more quote-unquote conservative one and that there are movies where i am or years in the past where i have been more demanding of realism and i've tried to as a person and as a critic, make myself more open to more fabulous ways of making films, that they could be anything. They can be non-narrative. They can just be one long music video. And I've tried to be better about recognizing where my preconceived notions are forcing me to think a film should only be one thing. And one of those things is like people say that... You know, Don't Worry Darling is unoriginal, which, yeah, but uh, maybe, but so what?
0: That's called a genre movie, dummies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they make them all the time.
2: <laughs> and so I have, even in my own friend group, people where I'm sometimes disappointed by how cinema cincy their takes can be about things. Where it's like, I know that you, 15 years ago, were critical of the Lord of the Rings discourse that was all like, don't the eagles just fly. The oh rewarder, you know, but that has become such a big part of like the critical and filmic discourse that like people I know who would who thought that that was an unintelligible argument and missed the point of why films work the way they work and why narrative works the way that works are now criticizing other texts with basically where it's it's just like a fill in the blank of the same idea, and so even though this movie is extreme in its realism and that's something that i personally have been trying to like maybe not demand so much i think that it is the thing that makes this movie beautiful
0: that is its goal and it does it very well it it is very humanist it's very moving like we were saying earlier its politics are like pretty clearly defined and like agreeable it's a very impressive production it's just so funny like thinking about the stuff that's prioritizes like important art it's also like almost a cliche example of that mm-hmm. at the same time like it is a palm door winner that's gotten the full criterion treatment it's just um personally i'm coming at it from like a uh, i need to get over myself to enjoy this position like this is eating my vegetables because i'm always pushing against like the idea that this is the only thing that's important especially in a social circle that like values cinema yeah. <laughs> you know like this is the core stuff is like this very important downbeat somewhat miserable art is is the stuff that's actually serious and like deserves prominence over a genre film like don't worry darling Uh. um and obviously this is a better movie than that but i'm just saying uh maybe in a world where everything was the way i i like it where everything was like high fantasy uh very like visually expressive, dreamlike. It, it would be like I would be so tired of that that I would be begging for a tree of water clocks, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> uh, so it's it's kind of hard for me to like um let down my defenses with that. You, you know? need your
1: vegetables.
0: Yeah, I need I need vegetables so that I can eat my sugar. So I don't know. I I did like this movie. I just wanted to um put forth that like uh that's where I was coming from originally when I was saying like, oh, this is like a, you know, a classroom tool and an educational thing um it's very like culturally minded that is true but obviously that has a place in a well-balanced film diet i just forget to do that sometimes you know I, f- I forget to make room for that and to like clear an afternoon to watch a three-hour drama about poverty i don't know that i would do that without someone on this podcast pushing me to um because it's so yeah. easy to default to like roger corman cheapies that you can watch three in a row <laughs> yeah. in the same amount of time yeah
2: i don't think i could do it without someone on this podcast forcing me to even if that person is me if it has to be me <laughs> yeah. like i said i was not going to watch this movie unless i I made myself into a corner to watch it and i'm happy that i did but that yeah. is yeah. true
0: it's very good well i don't think anybody would be surprised to learn that the tree of wooden clogs is currently streaming on the criterion channel
2: <laughs> and you know if you watch it and then talk about it with a group of your friends, you might actually have some personal revelations like that. Yeah. About, <laughs> about yourself, about your life. Oh,
0: awesome.
1: rats, up the kitchen. Roaches up to my knees. Turn on on, it like that guy the rain through the
0: ceiling. The can. You know.